make sure that whoever's doing the acquiring really understands your business and has demonstrated that before the acquisition. You need people who are from the industry, in the industry, on the board of the company that's doing the acquiring, not have just learnt about the industry. This is really key. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. On today's episode, I speak with Peter Bray. Peter has held executive roles with some of the largest ad agencies in the world, including Saatchi and Saatchi, where he was CEO of the brand shop, and WPP, where he was the firm's global head of digital. But early in his career, Peter was a highly successful agency entrepreneur who sold his first ad agency to a public holding company in Australia in 2010. Now, Peter bet the farm on this exit and tied 100% of his financial outcome to his buyer's public stock, which dropped 97% in the first six months because of fraud at the board level. Although Peter's dream of a life-changing financial windfall disappeared seemingly overnight, he was able to leverage his experience and reputation into enormous professional wins. In our conversation, we talk about doing due diligence on your buyer, taking chips off the table when you have a chance, and how putting a win on the board by selling your company can elevate your professional career to new heights. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Peter Bray. Hello, everyone. I'd like to take a minute to highlight this week's sponsor, Doran Mayhew, a top 60 national accounting, tax, and M&A advisory firm who we frequently recommend to conduct sell-side QOV or quality of earnings for our clients. In 2023, there are a lot of things changing in the world of M&A, economic headwinds, failed banks, and big bankruptcies. But with the credibility of a sell-side QOV from a top firm like Dorn Mayhew, more buyers will look at your deal, buyer diligence will run faster, and your investment banker will be armed with clean financial data to be able to address any buyer questions with well-conceived responses. What this really means is you're more likely to maximize your exit. Dorn Mayhew is one of Forbes' best tax and accounting firms in the United States. Check out their quality of earnings offerings and everything else they can help you with at Doren.com. That's D-O-E-R-E-N.com. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. Peter, I'm really excited, as you can tell in our previous conversations, to have you on our episode your experience is really unique. Your story is unique. Even how we got to know each other is unique, that you've been seeing our content, the exits that we're having, and there was uh, some outreach and we got to hear your story. And this is a story that everybody needs to hear. To be a little bit more specific, I think that your exit happening, what is it, close to 13 years ago now? Uh, is that about right? Uh, 16 years ago, yeah. 16 years. I, I'm really excited to hear about how that exit has elevated you into the kind of upper echelon of your industry in the ad agency world at the top firms that yeah. then catapults you further to building the company that you're building today, which after our conversation, this is like the company you belong building, running, executing all of the above. And as you can tell, right, like I, I was so excited to do this. Mark Cuban actually had this time slot and I bumped him to get you in. So thank you for being here. Always happy to bump Mark Cuban from anything, mate. 
So, uh, I, you know, I was debating because your story is so interesting at so many different phases. Yeah. I, I was thinking like, hey, do we yeah. jump around on timeline? But I think, why don't we start um, kind of from the beginning? How did you get into this world to launching your your first company? Sure. There's, I mean, there's a good story there as well. So I, neither of my parents were commercial professionals. So I was basically in academia world. Um, I was doing a PhD. Um, I started college pretty young. Uh, I'm Australian originally, obviously, not English. I started college pretty young at 16 and I was doing my PhD at 20. Problem was I was paying my own way and I need to have some kind of income to survive. And so I was lecturing part-time at a university called Macquarie University in Australia. But, you know, that doesn't pay much. And when you're just doing a PhD, you don't get many slots. So I was like, right, I need extra cash. And back then, because of my doctorate research, which was actually in French film theory and psychology, which ended up being useful, I used a thing, a very early version of the internet, a very early version, a thing called Gopher. Gopher was something that allowed you to magically look at books that were in other libraries, even overseas. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, this is, you know, we hear about the birth of the internet being, you know, the three colleges in, in the US, but really it was, a, it was also a network that I was using. So I needed extra cash and I was looking in the newspaper as you did at the time and there was an ad and all it said was, uh, we're looking for people who know how to use the internet actually know how to use the internet. If this is you, apply here. And I thought, well, this is incredible. I actually, I know what this thing is. Again, there were no pictures on the screen. There was nothing. It was just text on a green screen. So I went to this, I, I went to this company not knowing a thing. And they said, right, the first thing we're going to do is give, going to give you a test about the internet. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it was quite a technical test. There were 25 questions and I failed dismally. I got seven out of 25. I'll never forget. I got seven out of 25. Seven more than I would have gotten. Yeah, seven. And I was like, <laughs> what is HTTPS? What does that mean? I'm like, I have no idea. I, now, of course, I know it stands for Hypertext Transfer <laughs> Protocol, but back then I didn't know. So I failed this test, but they called me back. They said, look, Peter, you performed extremely poorly, but the interesting thing about you is you can clearly talk about quite complex ideas in plain speak, in simple language. We like that. And they said, we'd like you to be part of the team. So I started off in customer service, which was just a few of us. But basically, we went from, gosh, 30 people to about 450 in one year. Wow. And that company became very famous in Australia. It was Australia's equivalent to AOL. Um, it was called Aussie Mail, O-Z-E-M-A-I-L. Okay. So more than one in every two Australians had an Aussie Mail email address. But that's kind of how I fell into advertising. And what was interesting is that my background that was I thought would never help me with a job, which was about um, psychology, and essentially linguistics, ended up being the perfect thing for advertising because it's all about humans. So mm-hmm. that's how I fell in 
and then you know went from there to a startup in nineteen, another startup in nineteen ninety seven, and then ended up running. There was a PR agency that I had a friend working at, and I thought they were like, "Oh, we're going to start this agency. We got these clients wanting these things called web pages. We need someone to run it." And that was the agency that I was at and grew successfully before I thought, right, time to do it myself. And that's where I started my first agency, which is the one I sold, which was called Clear Blue Day. That's a great story. You know, while you're talking, I'm trying to think of something clever to say that you started college at 16 years old. And I can't remember what I was doing at 16, but it was definitely nothing productive. So uh, you're off to... uh, First year certainly wasn't productive for me either, Todd. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, right? You started very early. You're on the forefront of technology that's, you know, changing the world. Um, You find yourself in marketing. It feels like that this is the home, particularly with your your natural skill set and educational skill set. So you're off to start this this agency. So yeah, take it from there. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and actually there's a story about how I started the agency as well. So, Please. so I was at this division of a PR agency. The division was the PR agency founders were incredible and I owe them everything to this day. Uh, Tony Blackie and his wife, Jen, they, my friend was a techie guy. I was never a techie guy. You know, I was more sort of the advertising guy, but you know, I built this little interactive agency at the time, and we ended up, you know, winning significant clients. Um, you know, we won a fourteen million dollar contract with um, a tourism in Victoria. It was, you know, we were quite successful, and we'd been blitzing all the metrics. But then the CFO of the group started really diving into expenses. And I'll never forget, and this is a true story, I wanted to get a stapler, a stapler, <laughs> and I needed to get approval for it. And on that day, I decided, right, I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I have a stapler. And I looked up domains that were available and Clear Blue Sky was taken and I thought, right, what's the next closest one? Clear blue day. And half an hour before I officially resigned, bought the domain. So if you go and look at the who is records of clear blue day, you can see the day I resigned and started the agency. And I took with me a couple of key people, two other people, creative director and a CTO. And we started Clear Blue Day. And that's how the agency started in Sydney first. Then we opened up an office in Melbourne. Then we opened up, up an office in New York. That's great. I thought you, you were going to say that you took a stapler. We had uh, we have I a previous guest. I should have. I should have. <laughs> you know, I should have just taken all the staples. <laughs> I mean, that it's actually not a unique story. We've had another guest, remember Greg Packer, and he when he got acquired, they couldn't figure out how to get kind of print material out to anyone because all the printers were broken. So he took it, put a printer on his Amex, and they're like, uh, "No, we don't do that here." And he's like, "All right, I'm out of here. This doesn't work. I'm solving problems." Yeah, and, exactly. uh, and you guys are worried about you know, how you record all of it. Exactly. Yeah. It was, I'll never forget. It was a stapler. So clear blue day, you spend what, nine years building that agency with obviously a very talented team. 
Yeah, so seven years building and finished the, well, eight years building, uh, was gone during year nine. Yeah, very fortunate. We were quite unique in that I'd recognized already that most digital agencies at the time were very tech-driven, all about building web pages, and I could see it was going to be commoditized one way or another. But there weren't agencies that specialized in strategy, digital strategy. And I'm not talking AdWords, I'm talking actual brand strategy, but using mm-hmm. digital first. And so we were quite unique. We were able to get some great clients like, you know, we had McDonald's, uh, we had BMW in the US, which is why we opened up New York, Subaru, Pioneer. We had a great, great client set, which is why we we're an attractive acquisition. And we had a high hype, a very high profile. So you decided to sell the business um, after eight years of building it? Or were you were you approached? I knew around year six that I was close to taking it as far as I thought I could. Okay. Um, I was the majority owner, 70%. And I was fearful about seeing this wage bill every month. And you know, we were built on projects at the time, project by project. Mm-hmm. And I was exhausted as well. You know, the first three years of Clear Blue Day, I didn't pay myself a wage. I made it up pretty quickly. But, you know, I was, I'd never become wealthy from it. So I had this agency that had great clients, great workforce, great reputation. But financially, I was probably better off taking a job elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there'd been no payoff. And so I think that a combination of those things, it wasn't that I wanted to get out of the industry in any way. I, lo- I love the industry, still do, but the time had come. So I spent a lot of time doing preparation, you know, really getting the books in order, making sure all the paperwork was perfect. You know, I was fortunate. We had a, a part-time CFO who was incredible, um, who really got things into shape. And then at that time, look, if you kind of build it, sometimes you do build it and they actually do come. And mm-hmm. we had two groups, two listed groups, both of which are now defunct, approach us. When and you say listed, Peter, do you, are they, these are public companies? On the Australian, they're both on the Australian Stock Exchange. Yeah. Got it. Yep. We were an attractive acquisition because of the legitimacy that we would give. Um, especially to holding companies that were being that were newly formed, right? Um, everyone was tr- sort of doing roll-ups out of nothing, mm-hmm. right? With with no previous core agencies involved, and so yeah, I, I was preparing, and so that's one of the things that has stayed with me is prepare from day one for your exit. So you know, fashion the agency from day one, and have a roadmap with your desired exit in mind. And yes, you'll pivot with that. It was all quite quick because we, you know, we you know, passed due diligence from our end with flying colors. Yeah. Well, all right. Let me back up a little bit because I think that there's a lot here. And, you know, this idea that you started an agency without taking an income for three years. No capital either. And you funded it yourself. What, what was interesting in my head was I just kind of nodded. Yeah, that's that's what we go through as founders. But I think the majority of the world does not understand the kind of 
the risk and the financial sacrifice that yeah. we take to build something that is incredibly exciting. And yes, we believe that there's going to be a payoff at some point, yeah. but you know, how long can you go feeding the machine, hiring the people, being responsible for other jobs? And it sounds like, as you said, you were exhausted. You own 70% of the equity. It was time to take some, some chips off the table it also sounds like you were very much aware to have an exit that was going to be attractive to you. You really had to have your financial house in order, really have all the contracts in place, really a, a deal room, essentially, right? A data room yeah. uh, set up before you went to market. Now, you're talking about a couple of entities, right? These are public entities in the Australian market. And you and I haven't talked about this, but it, it sounds a little bit like how we view SPACs, where it's an entity out there, it's got a purpose yeah. to, to acquire something. Yeah. And there's a ton of risk in that as, as what we see today in the, in the US stock market, where SPACs have really fallen out of favor. And that comes and goes, right? This is not the first time that SPACs have burned you know, a lot of uh, investors. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like that it, it's similar, right? Yeah. They had the opportunity to do a ton of due diligence on you, at least one of the entities, right, that you decided to move forward with because you were ready to be sold. And that's that's amazing, right? To have your house in order like that puts you way ahead. I'm sure they're looking at 10, 20 Correct. other opportunities yep. and you're rising to the top because of this, right? You are easily digestible. They understand yep. what they're getting. They can financially model. So I, I won't go further, but... Why don't you take it from there, right? Have they given you a purchase price that you're happy with? You're running your own personal ROI? Yeah. So, you know, the entity we went with, they were our favorite because uh, for a few reasons. A, their board was very attractive to us. They had a former premier of Victoria. So one of the states of Australia, a guy who's extremely famous was on their board, talked to him a few times. So that was attractive. We also thought their chairman seemed like a great guy and they were also talking to some other agencies that we happened to mm -hmm. know. So they acquired us and two other mm -hmm. agencies and an email company at the same time. And so, you know, we knew the others mm -hmm. as well. So that was also attractive to us that we weren't yeah. alone in that. And I remember the guy who was sort of the 2IC in this investment vehicle, wonderful guy, still have incredible respect for him to this day, highly competent. He was a generally good person, knew his stuff, um, which again, I mean, I would give advice and make sure that whoever's doing the acquiring really understands your business and has demonstrated that before the acquisition. You need people who are from the industry, in the industry, on the board of the company that's doing the acquiring not have just learned about the industry. This is really key. That's great advice, Peter. I mean, you're talking about doing due diligence, right, on your buyer. And I know in hindsight, you think, oh, maybe I could have done more, but you're really impressed with the people. Um, you're impressed that you're not the only one, right? It's, it is clearly an industry. They have a vision for it. I'm sure they've shared that with you. Right. And they've got industry people on the board. And all of that, that understanding of what you're getting into, I'm not sure there's much more that you can do to uh, feel good about who no, you're going with. Especially, I mean, you know, when it was happening, I was 32 yep. years old. I'd never been in that world yep. before of M&A. So didn't, you know, I'd also, I should say, I also hired a consultant 
to help. Oh, so when we're, you know, with this, and he took a percentage of the sale, um, there's a learning mm-hmm. from that, a percentage of the sale at mm-hmm. the time, and there's a learning in that. And so I felt in good hands, like I'd done the right things, you know, hired someone who did understand that world, who was, you know, both a friend and, you know, extremely competent, extremely professional. Um, so the thought that had been, I'd been doing all the right things and that didn't end up being the case. Yeah. So the fact that you surrounded yourself with people that have been through it before, I was going to say that's the only really other thing I would have mentioned is that typically when you, you're building an M&A team, right, to take you to market, they've already transacted with the majority of the buyers that you're going to see. So they know how these players play. And, you know, in your case, you did hire somebody, but you're also selling to a rather new entity. So I'm not sure there's much more that, right. that, that could have been done. So let's tell the story now, right? This is, sure. uh, you make, sure. you get it so done. So I'm happy to mention the entity because they don't exist yep. anymore. So they were called Q Limited, as in the letter okay. Q. Their stock ticker code, ticker code was QXQ. QXQ. So Q Limited, we did a deal. My agency had been successful. We'd been growing well. You know, we were profitable at this stage. You know, I was paying myself as well, which was good. I've been paying myself for four or so years. And we really liked Q Limited. They were acquiring two other companies, two other agencies, and another one that we respected greatly as well. But okay, this is all good. So the one thing I did, well, I did many things wrong, I think, in hindsight. I did not take any cash in the acquisition mm-hmm. deal. I took zero because I had no debts. You know, yeah. I was good, right? I was all about building. I wanted to build. And I thought, you know, I can wait six mm-hmm. months. I can mm-hmm. wait a year, mm-hmm. right? So I took an all script deal. So, you know, I had... Yeah, I didn't take a red cent, sure. not a cent. My ECD was a bit smarter than me. He took some cash and my client service director, who I, I gave her some equity, she took some cash as well, yeah. but I took Because none. you were planning on the future. Was was your outcome in the form of an earnout? was it going to be more exciting, right? I think at some point you were eight figures, yeah. eight figure yeah. deal. If yeah, you were to leave, yeah. leave it on more the table done. and roll with Correct. the equity. Okay. Correct. Correct. So that was, you know, that was attractive to me. And if I'm going to be in with something, I'm in. I'm all in. That was my thinking. So we do the deal and I remember, you know, when when we signed it all, we had a glass of champagne and, you know, as you do, you're feeling like, you know, kings of the world, right? We all know that feeling. You know, if you think you're, you're invincible, you can do anything, this is just the start, right? And my one... My only outlay that I made was a deposit on a nice car. Just a deposit, okay. right? But it was it was a nice car, so it was a significant <laughs> deposit. And then we got to work. So you know, I you know it was industry news, obviously in our, our media that we'd we'd sold, and then it was dealing with their board. Which was I was fine with doing, you know. It was it was different, you know, reporting, you know, doing your board reports every month and justifying why you're making these decisions, not those. But that's fine. I signed up for it. I've never mm-hmm. had an issue mm-hmm. with that. And of course, you start watching the share price, right? Because the share price is really, really mm-hmm. significant <laughs> when you when you've done this kind of a deal. And so, you know, and which we 
Now, all the clients stayed with us. We didn't lose any clients. I think, you know, you've got to make sure the clients are part mm-hmm. of the journey. And they were really happy for That's us. Great. Like they were, you know, we didn't lose anybody. You know, it wasn't one of those things where they'd say, oh, you're now too big for us or too busy for us. No, we business as usual. We were lucky we had supportive clients. And so um, we're you know, chugging along uh, month after month. And we're watching the share price. And the share price keeps going down and down and down dramatically mm. to within three months, it had gone down over 50%. Within six months, it had gone down over 90%. So this was interesting because... I now realized that I was working for someone else with very little value at the end of it, but I was stuck. I was in a bind, Mm -hmm. right? And it didn't make any sense. Like we're looking at the volumes. It just, we, we couldn't work it out. Like why had we gone down 95%? When you know the entity, the overall entity of Q Limited was looking mm-hmm. stronger, right? There'd been good acquisitions, there'd been great growth. It made no mm-hmm. sense, and so I'm now in a situation where I'm going, "What have I done?" Yeah, <laughs> right. Because suddenly I'm working as hard as ever with now a tiny payout mm-hmm. on the horizon. And then the share price went down further. So it had then went down, you know, after, I think month seven, it was now down 97%. Oh, that's so painful. And it made no sense. And I had to get out because I was looking at it going, there doesn't, this makes, this is now wasting mm-hmm. time, wasting mm-hmm. my time. And I was never, I'm not a bitter kind of person, it's just not my mm-hmm. style. But I then negotiated. Well, when I say negotiated, I said I've got, I told Q, Q Limited I, I want out because I didn't want to be part of their sort of management structure mm-hmm. either. And they didn't understand also what Clearly Day was in that they saw the numbers in the spreadsheet, but they acted like we were making widgets <laughs> and they wanted us to cut staff, cut staff again, and why are you spending so much time on this, etc. Whereas advertising, especially clients, we're in the business of relationships. We're a very human <laughs> business and they didn't understand that. So they end up being a culture clash, plus I'm working for next to nothing. So myself and my head of client services told them we wanted out. They put us in a room, the two of us, that wasn't even in my building. Um, It was in their building. They put us in the room, just Mm -hmm. the two of us, with nothing to do for three months. Of course, we often left the room. We we weren't (laughs) going to stick in the room, stay in the room. You know, they wanted, because they knew we were planning to leave. They wanted to be the ones who would manage our Mm -hmm. team. That ended up destroying the agency. But basically, I was out, out of there 
a little over a year after we yep. sold. You know, I can say for the agency that I built up to be successful, doing financially well, great reputation, I got $30,000. The irony is I paid the consultant $90,000. Oh. So I actually lost $60,000 and had no yep. agency. Well, as, as painful as that is, I really appreciate you sharing it. I think that these things really happen and we're in transactions, I would say weekly now, where we're trying to think through giving the right advice to our founders in how much risk do you want to take? How well do we know the buyer's playbook? Yeah. 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 And Todd, here's the thing. Hey. Complete mistake of mine to not take majority cash, at least 50% mm -hmm. off the table. Complete yep. mistake. And um, would never do that again. But B, the, the twist in the tail, you know, we're wondering why the share yeah. price has gone yep. down so dramatically. It ends up that the chairman of the group, not the 2IC who we, we loved, the chairman had a number of offshore entities and he was manipulating the share price incredibly uh, to do this squeeze and then he'd purchase more at the low price. He ended up being taken to court by the Australian government. So we have the ASIC, which is the Australian Securities and Investment mm -hmm. Commission, which is like, like the SEC, exactly the same thing. They end up taking him to court yeah. over this. So we were victims of this. He got off because he pleaded mental incompetence. Oh <laughs> and he was barred as a director of an Australian company, but he didn't go to jail. So, you know, that's the, you know, Q Limited. You could look up ASIC, ASIC, and Q Limited. You can read all about it online. But it makes for good reading. I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Kim.com who's a New Zealander as well, but yeah. he's wrapped up in things as well that have to do with it. I think called Opes Prime. But yeah, so what what could yeah, I have done, yeah. right? But we were just, you know, unfortunately, there was someone who was being very unscrupulous and you know, doing some illegal stuff, and we were just a number on a spreadsheet. So I mean, that's it's an amazing story. In hindsight, Peter, do you think that they were interested in you having an all stock deal because uh, the chairman? had plans of doing this and didn't want to lay out more cash or was it really totally at your discretion? It's a great question. In hindsight, you know, the chairman was absolutely talking up the prospects of the group and how we'd be encouraged to grow and putting the data in front of me that made me taking all stock extremely sure. attractive. I certainly... No one ever said, oh, you might want to take some cash now or those sorts of things. You know, the reason my my ECD and my director of client service took some cash at the time, they yeah. asked for it because there were certain things they wanted to take sure, care of, sure. right? Housing or whatever, mortgages, whatever it may be. But I think that it was, I should have been captain of the ship more in terms of my immediate needs. I think I was looking so far in the horizon that I was ignoring the waves that were right in front of me. Or, you know, or maybe I was looking at the horizon and so confident in seeing the horizon that I wasn't checking the weather report 30 days out.
Yeah, honestly, I, I think you're being hard on yourself. Everything you've said to me is I don't know how you could have prepared for, you know, essentially criminal activity, right? There's there's just oh, absolutely yeah, criminal there's activity. no way to, to avoid that. Yeah, and look, you know, I'm sure my story isn't unique. No. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are in similar situations that have way worse things. Here's the reality. I always regard it just as a piece of paper with a number on it. Um, I never regarded it as money that I had, never, not once. You know, yes, there was the the deposit yeah, on the ask. car that I did not end up getting, that I did not yep, end up yep. getting, so that was gone. But, you know, I was always very realistic. I was, you know, I came from very, very humble beginnings. So, you know, I didn't have expectation or know what I would do with the money or things like that or, you know, I wasn't spending it in my head or anything. It was a piece of paper. Until the money's in the account, until the money's in the account, that's yep. all it is. Well, again, thank you for for sharing that. It sounds it sounds like it was incredibly painful because you know you had a legacy as well, right? You built this entity, um, you had a brand, you were you were well known in the market. Your clients were kind of counting on you moving forward, and so this isn't just kind of a financial slap in the face, right? There's a an element of something that you built going away, which has to be really very painful. Um, when we coach clients through this decision process, in rolling equity, we feel pretty comfortable with private equity firms that have a real track record that you can look to, right? And you want to understand when you're being purchased, if you're not the platform, if you're an add-on, where is that private equity firm in its life cycle of building up something to be sold, right? Is it three years away? Um, is it five yeah. years away? And oftentimes you can see that, that they know how to rinse and repeat and it can make a lot of sense to roll significant equity. And in many cases, you hear about that being the second bite of the apple, being larger than the first check. So I don't want this to really scare people away from that decision. You just really need to go in eyes wide open. And like you said, until it's in your account, you cannot count on it. Everything you take at closing has to be enough to make yeah. you do the deal, frankly. Do you think we could jump yeah. now because you've made some points to me offline about in building your business, it's one thing to kind of build internally. You have clients, you have a team, but what you did was build an extraordinary reputation outside of your company and in your industry. And then when this becomes public news, you're now elevated professionally to, you know, a status that is, is enviable. Can you talk to me about how you leverage that kind of uh, professional growth into the next stage in working with some of the, you know, top agencies in the world? Yeah, sure. I was very aware that you want to leverage your uh, commercial business and try and have that feed into a uh, – I don't like use – I don't really like the word person, term personal brand. I think it's more your reputation, mm -hmm. a personal reputation, that the proof point is the business mm -hmm. you've grown, right? Proof point for reputation is the business you've grown. But I certainly made sure, you know, I was um, you know, president of – national president of the main digital body – Back in Australia, I did a lot of speaking uh, to various companies, etc. So 
the proof point was the business and the awards it won, mm-hmm. et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But at the same time, I was always developing my own stream, which is reputation. And so I think that it's really important, especially, you know, I have a, a dear friend of mine who had a large exit last year. He's, you know, 50 years old and he's wondering what mm-hmm. next because a lot of what he he was very, you know, his business was him, right? He didn't have the profile outside the business and the clients sold to another listed company, um, a good one. And you know, now I feel, he feels a little bit rudderless. Mm-hmm. What's next? I think it's really important that the professional development you do outside your commercial entity continues because that's the bridge, mm-hmm. right? That's the bridge. So even when Clearwood Day was sold, my reputation was enhanced because of a sale, even though it went completely mm-hmm. haywire, right? But because I had all these other involvements in the industry, it made it really seamless. And so I was also really aware that I came from a very digital marketing mm-hmm. background. And, you know, in our industry, digital agencies rarely get a seat at the big table. The CEOs and the mm-hmm. CMOs It's very much the lead uh, advertising agency. So, you know, I transitioned to originally as director of digital, then became for a series of events, CEO of a, a branding agency mm-hmm. owned by one of the whole, another one of the big global holding companies, WPP. Mm-hmm. Ended up being CEO of that, and then went from there and was a C-suite in New York of Saatchi and Saatchi. So I was global head of digital across that, but that was all because of yep. reputation, right? You know, I was, I was effectively poached by Saatchi and Saatchi. I'd said no to the job three times, Mm -hmm. by the way, but the CEO knew of me purely by reputation. I didn't really know him very well, but he knew what I did. And so it was reputation that enabled me to seamlessly transfer into now the holding company side of things at the big 6,000 person agencies. And so, yeah, again, it was... It was also interesting in that my story is a little unique in that, you know, I sold an agency that was effectively just in mm-hmm. Australia. And, you know, in the US, they tend not to care as much. You guys don't care as much about what happens yeah. overseas. It sort of didn't happen if it didn't happen yeah. in the US. So that was interesting. But look, fortunately, I also had through my involvements, um, you know, with the Webby Awards, the International Academy of Digital Arts sure. and Sciences, I knew a lot of people who knew my reputation as well in various countries. So I think that, you know, when you have an, uh, an income coming in from your startup or your agency, whatever it may be, use the time to not just work on that business. Use the time to establish a reputation industry-wide. Mm-hmm. I mean, that made it really seamless for me. Look, the reality is there are certain people out there who are scared of founders. Yeah. They're scared of founders. Oh, they're too entrepreneurial for us. Uh, you know, they won't be able to handle being part of a different organization. They don't know um, how to uh, requisition staplers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, if you come across that, you don't want to work for them anyway. You don't want to work for them because they all want to be more entrepreneurial. This is the thing, right? They all want to act like a startup and be nimble and agile and swift. Mm-hmm. This, that's what they're selling. 
yep. to their clients. Yep. They're not. They can't do that. They're full of smart people, but structurally they can't do that. And I, and I always tell people that, especially when you know I've been brought into some agencies, turn them around, you know, inject digital, inject modernity. What people don't understand is they hire you to change the company, but it requires them to change themselves as well. This is what they don't think about. Mm-hmm. They think, oh, no, we just need to change the company. No, they need to change as well. And that's confronting for a lot of people yep. and it's threatening for a lot of people as well. You know, when yep. I look at potential hires, you know, I love seeing an entrepreneurial streak. I love seeing the bravery. I love seeing the general actual lack of ego. Mm-hmm. I love seeing the fact that people are prepared to go for it. That's interesting to me um, as opposed to people who have been in the same agency for 20 years. Well, I know that they're probably going to, you know, or if someone asked me what the first question they asked me is, oh, you know, how much annual leave do we get? That's the first question. You've got this beautiful opportunity in front, and that's the first question you're asking me. Well, that's unfortunately what you get with a lot of people coming from large agencies yeah. is the comp package as opposed to what's the work? How you make me fulfilled? How will you help my career development? So it's really interesting. So, again, going back to my point, people don't realise when you bring an agent of change, you have to change yourself mm-hmm. as well, and that's threatening. But also, look, you know, there's, there's a lot of organisations that can't handle an entrepreneurial mindset, and that's okay. And you just want to steer clear of them because it's not fun. You want to have yep. fun. Let me jump back a little bit, Peter, because I think the point I was trying to bring out, and maybe it's not you know, dead on, is that we tell a lot of founders, you've got a business, you're thinking about selling, and what you don't want to just think about is purchase price. Yes, dollars can be life-changing. They can enable certain amounts of security and options opportunity, but an exit can really elevate you professionally. And I I take your point, right? Maybe here in the US, you get an exit and you put that kind of on the resume, the industry knows about it, and you're going to have opportunities uh, pushed towards you. And maybe those opportunities are like yours, where you're elevating yourself within the corporate environment of that industry, which for you only lasts so long. I think for a lot of natural entrepreneurs, it's only going to last so long. But you built more reputation, you built you know, more credibility. And so now you've jumped and started your, the company that I said at the beginning, it feels like this is the company you were meant to start and build. So can you tell us a little bit about Brandco now? Sure. So I'd been at, you know, C-suite of big agencies Mm -hmm. uh, in New York. And I think when you've gone through the building an agency, selling it, that whole process, it can take a while to recover in my in my case, right? You know, again, I think I was lucky in that this really bad thing happened, you know, when I was in my early 30s. Mm-hmm. If, it had, if it had happened to me at 62, you know, I'd, I'd be a bitter old man, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I think that it might sound cliched, but I've never thought of myself as a, an entrepreneur but clearly I have the entrepreneurial spirit and it's just kind of who I am, mm-hmm. right? Because it's interesting. And so about five years ago, I um, left big agency land 
and thought I'd just consult for a while. And then a year into that, an old client of mine, tied, in fact, sought me out, and which was great for my ego, <laughs> and they wanted agency services. And I thought, you know, it's been about 10 years since I left Clearly Day, mm-hmm. right? I think I'm ready to do this again. I think I'm ready to go through this and create an agency again, but do it completely differently with a completely different mindset. So the nice thing was I could start and build an agency actually taking the learnings of the past. As an example, I didn't pay myself the first three years of Clear Blue Day. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Guess who gets paid first now? Me. So from day one, right, it wasn't going to be me. I'd be doing everything I personally could until I really need to hire someone else to take some workload and then be two of us and then be doing everything they could, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's much more fun. It's nice to pay yourself from Mm -hmm. day one. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you know, I mentioned having a huge wage bill every month. Well, you know, Brian Co. has a core team of only eight people. Everyone else is contract based on the work. So we keep our IP, we keep the core team, but the majority of people are contract on a needs basis. Mm -hmm. That's taken, I don't worry about the wage bill every month. We're all good. Now we have... You know, we don't, we've never had an office. So we've been around four and a half years. Mm-hmm. So the first one and a half years was pre-COVID, right? And it was kind of novel for you, an advertising agency not have an office. It also meant that there were some brands that didn't take us seriously, didn't think we were really a company. Mm-hmm. COVID comes along and all the traditional agencies are talking about how agile they are because they're, they're not working in an office anymore. Okay, guys, right, and doing thought pieces about it. So COVID came along and gave us legitimacy as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I've also, I've, you know, from day one, our books have been perfect, right, as well. Mm-hmm. Contracts is, are perfect. We're not a bank for anybody. So clients pay us in advance mm-hmm. of all work being done, any media being bought. And I've also got the benefit of more experience. We do a better job, right? We're a pure advertising agency that's very strong at digital. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we, we haven't lost a client in the last two and a half years. We've resigned three clients. We haven't lost a client. Mm-hmm. And so it's been highly profitable. We're the fastest growing small agency, according to Adweek in the US. I saw that. Um, we'll, we'll, I think we're going to be the fastest growing again when they announce it again this year. And it's been, it's honestly been the agency I always wanted to build. Mm-hmm. We've built it. And we have great staff loyalty, client loyalty. It's been very, very stress-free. And honestly, the question for me now, Todd, is, you know, do we acquire other agencies Mm -hmm. and we become a lead agency that helps other agencies get their foot in the door or is there something else, Right. right? I've certainly taken the learnings of the first experience and, you know, really maximized that learning to create an agency that I think is is 
not perfect, but it's close. Oh, it's fantastic, Peter. So yeah, pe- people want to learn about it. It's brayand.co, right? Yeah, brayand.co. .co. So, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think there, you know, there's a lot of learnings from you know, really trying to understand your buyer, that buyer's history to know how you structure a deal. And and then also for me, putting a win on the board, it's it's very evident and may come in kind of subtleties along your career, but putting that win on the board by selling a business you know, helped build that reputation that got you to where, where you are. It's, um, I'm not pleased that we got unlucky with a chairman that we sold to, mm-hmm. but it certainly gave me a lot of learnings. Yeah. And I certainly want to make sure that no other agency is ever put in that place. I think that, you know, my advice around it with regard to that and acquisition is A, do your reverse due diligence. Like as an agency, you have the scarcity or as a company, a startup, you're the scarcity. There's plenty of money around. You're the scarcity. Your knowledge, your clients, your company that's the scarcity. It's actually not the dollars, the money, right? It's a great point. I think that as founders, when we go into an M&A process and we sign a letter of intent to sell to a specific business, you know, you're enamored. This is going to be life-changing and it's hard to kind of dig in and be really critical. And I think you really have to lean on the professionals around you to help guide that. Doing that due diligence, it's, it's very difficult. I don't think there would be a way to uncover yeah. what happened to you, frankly, yeah. regardless of the decisions that you make. Yeah, and, and I think also, also, Todd, just making sure that whatever people you get involved, whether the, it's the acquirer, mm-hmm. whether it's consultants, advisors, make sure that all of them really understand where the value is in your business. Yeah. Right? What are you really in the business of doing? So your output may be you're selling cars, but what you're really doing is maybe in the case of Volvo, you're selling safety, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not just what the outputs are. You need people who are prepared to find the time to really understand what you're making or doing or selling, and then are they supportive of that? If they're only supportive of the outcomes, which are the dollars, Mm -hmm. yes, we all want to be crazy profitable, but you need people who are going to understand how you get to that point. Yeah, I mean, and you- also understand your company culture as well. Because I've, on the flip side, I saw Q Limited then destroy my agency mm-hmm. right within two years, destroy it. That was actually the harder bit to see, yeah. right? Than the money. It's like, well, that work kind of went down the drain. Then you yeah. go, okay, but I did a lot of good stuff along the way, right? It's not just the destination. But you're making sure that people really understand where the value lies in your company is incredibly vital. I'll, I'll riff on that just a second because, Ray, you're, you're speaking our language. When you're building a team around you to help sell you, that team, if they are very industry specific, meaning that they have sold your business essentially before multiple times, they really understand the nuances of your business and therefore can present it. And then now they're presenting it to known buyers, buyers that they've transacted with before. They know how those buyers think about certain opportunities and they may frame the value of your business slightly differently to each buyer. And when you create that understanding, you can create real value. And 
also understanding what every buyer has as a corporate culture. If those two groups are going to come together and create kind of the happy marriage, you can have the best financial outcome, you can have the best professional outcome, but it really starts with, as you're saying, like real nuanced understanding of the value that you have in your business. That's so right. let's let's uh, kind of jump. We typically ask, you know, what was that purchase that you made post acquisition? And it was going to be a car. And I love to hear that. I love cars and uh, particularly yeah. historical ones. Can I ask what was the car that you were going to purchase? It was a Maserati. Yeah. Current model Maserati. Nice. Um, you know, look, now I have a couple of classic cars that are that are much much more interesting. Yes. So, um, <laughs> Good yeah. for you. Now, and then, and uh, we really like to finish with, you know, who would you like to thank who really contributed to your personal and professional success? And you mentioned a couple of people right off the bat. Yeah. And I just love kind of ending with kind of giving the gratitude. Yeah, honestly, t- Tony yep. Blackie and his wife, Jenny McDonald, they ran the PR agency that was smart enough to create an interactive division really early on certainly credit them and look i think i'm very lucky to have now an amazing amazing wife who you know convinced me to put my last name on the shingle of the current of brain co which i was completely didn't want to do um she said no peter they're buying you though you know but you you look along the way and it's also the clients right it's your clients supportive clients who are with you through thick and thin that's yeah. Yeah. And they're, 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 they're numerous. That's great. Peter, thank you again for doing this. I have to get your address and, and send you a stapler. I think that's a nice way to cap this off. <laughs> no need anymore. Unless it's, you know, <laughs> you got I'm, plenty I'm, of staplers. I always take a fancy stapler. That'd be good. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks again, Peter. Thanks, Todd. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.